As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cleveland, Ohio, 1932. The Great Depression is in full swing, and it's not exactly a barrel of laughs. Economic hardship is everywhere, and people are growing desperate desperate enough to do anything for even a few dollars. Tucked into Cleveland's business district is a secondhand clothing shop. It's run by a man named Mitchell Siegel. He's a Lithuanian Jewish immigrant, born Mikhail Segalovich. The shop does a fair business. He's able to provide for his family, his wife, his son Jerry, Jerry's siblings, five in all. Mitchell's shop has suits, shirts, shoes, previously worn, but in this economic climate, affording any kind of clothing at all is a luxury. Anyone walking through the door is greeted warmly. The two men coming into his shop now, just before he starts closing up, he welcomes. How can I help you, gentlemen? They don't answer. Ah, that's a very nice one. Very sharp. Would you like to try it on? The men pull suits from the racks, stretching out the sleeves. Admiring them, Mitchell has a good selection of sizes and colors. Maybe this man wants to look good for a job interview. Maybe he's going to be married. Or maybe he has something else in mind. Grab it. No, no stop. Le- leave. It's a robber. One man has grabbed a suit and is headed for the door. Mitchell begins to move toward them, shouting. But there's two of them and only one of him. They pry the suit from his grasp. A suit that won't be easily replaced, that could earn him money he won't have. The struggle is happening, literally and metaphorically, all across the country. But even though Mitchell is one of many, here, he's all alone. Please! No! No! The men flee the store, leaving Mitchell on the floor. He can't catch his breath and his chest is heavy. Does he think he's been shot? Soon, his wife will learn she's a widow 
and his children will be told they no longer have a father. For the next six years, really for the rest of his life, his teenage son Jerry will wish someone had been there to protect Mitchell, to save him. Someone who could shake the thieves out of their car as they ran away in terror, protecting an innocent man who only wanted to go to work to provide for his family. Someone invulnerable. Our story starts with a robbery, a copy of Superman's first appearance being taken from the home of Nicolas Cage. But Superman's story starts here with another robbery. And in the eyes of Jerry Siegel, it won't be the last. Superman was taken from him over and over again, stolen a thousand times before a thief ever set foot on Cage's property. For iHeartRadio, this is Stealing Superman. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is Episode 6, Another Planet. In 1933, one year after his father died, Jerry Siegel walked down from his second floor shared bedroom at 10622 Kimberly Avenue in Cleveland, headed to Glenville High. When he was finished for the day, he'd head back home and immerse himself in science fiction, in the pulps. Those were the digest-sized fiction collections with titles like Amazing Stories and Private Detective that let the imaginations of their authors run wild. The full-color covers held big promises, rockets to outer space, malevolent aliens, mad scientists. Jerry loved them. He breathed in the cheap brown paper and used it as kindling for his own imagination. Jerry wanted to be a writer, a sci-fi writer, just like the ones he had admired in the pulps. Everyone knew it too. I know my mom told me the story where she was about seven or eight at that time, and she'd come over with her siblings. She had four other siblings, and they'd come over to the house, and they'd knock on the door, and Jerry would be in his bedroom. He had this kind of like an attic bedroom where he kept his typewriter, and he wrote all kinds of stories, even as a young teen. And he'd look out the window, and he'd see them coming up the driveway, and then he would go around to the door, and they'd say, open the door, and he would say, wait, I'm going to use my x-ray vision to tell you what you're wearing. And he would say, Irv, you're wearing a white shirt, and Ruth, you're wearing a blue dress. And of course, he knew this because he looked out the window, but he wanted to pretend he had x-ray vision, and they didn't know what x-ray vision even was. So he had all these ideas, and this was even before Superman. You know, he was coming with these different ideas. That's Gary Kaplan. Gary is a cousin of Jerry's and knows a lot about the family history which means he knows quite a bit about our shared cultural history. Well, I remember in the beginning, I didn't even know that Superman was created by a family member when I was really young. I, was, I remember when I was watching The Adventures of Superman on TV with George Reeves, my mom walked in the room, she says, you know, that's your cousin. And at first I didn't know what she was talking about because I knew Superman wasn't real. <laughs> she says, no, she says, she says, my cousin Jerry, he created Superman with his friend Joe. And, and I was like shocked. In life, there are different kinds of fortune, good and bad circumstances. Losing his father was a tragedy. But not long before, Jerry Siegel had met someone who would change his life, a classmate named Joe Schuster, the Joe Gary mentioned. 
They had actually lived near each other for a few years, but didn't know it. Yes. Jerry lived in the Glenville neighborhood of Cleveland, and Joe lived in the Kinsman area of Cleveland, and they didn't know each other. The neighbors were not too far apart, but they were different neighborhoods. And Joe went to Alexander Hamilton Junior High, and they had a newspaper there, the Junior High, and my uncle was editor of that paper as a ninth grader, and Joe was an illustrator, and he did comics for that paper, and this was in the early 1930s. Jerry and Joe met through another cousin of Jerry's, who knew Joe's family had moved to Cleveland from Toronto a few years earlier and believed that the two boys would get together like a house on fire. That's because Joe was also a science fiction fanatic. But he didn't want to write for the pulps, exactly. Joe was a born artist, an illustrator, self-taught mostly from tracing other art, someone who might feel more comfortable drawing the covers that enticed people from the drugstore shelves or the introductory drawings that set the stage for the story to follow. Joe would draw on anything, even wallpaper someone had thrown away. They had the same type of personalities, and they really hit it off. They both loved science fiction. In those days, science fiction was relatively small compared to today, so it was something that only a few people were interested in. And uh, they read the pulp magazines like Amazing Stories, and uh, they loved that kind of stuff. And they wanted to do something similar to that, but something really, really different and new. And they kept coming up with ideas, and Jerry would write, and Joe would illustrate. It's hard to explain how serendipitous this meeting was. Jerry and Joe were even alphabetized in class close together. The universe seemed to want to make certain they would meet. Their skills complemented each other perfectly for what was, at the time, a virtually unknown medium, the comic book. In the 1930s, comics usually referred to comic strips, the sequential art published in newspapers that offered tiny snippets of illustrated humor and adventure. Some publishers collected the strips into periodicals, and that, over time, gave way to creating original long-form illustrated stories, beginning with 1935's New Fun No. 1, which is believed to be the first all-new collection of comic book stories. Along with jazz, it would be one of the rare homegrown mediums of art in the United States. But Jerry and Joe weren't thinking of birthing a new medium. They were high school kids having fun collaborating. Jerry conjured up sci-fi tales and Joe visualized them. One of their stories was titled Reign of the Superman, which they published in their own pulp magazine they named Science Fiction. It was about a maniacal scientist trying to craft an unstoppable monster with powers of telepathy, super eyesight, and hearing via a special serum. But this Superman was a crook, a villain. All he wants is money and power. You can see the wheels turning, how Jerry and Joe were moving towards something new and different, something pop culture didn't even have a word for, yet. As they moved through high school, Jerry and Joe absorbed what was happening in the world around them. One of the biggest local heroes in town was Benny Friedman, a football player for Glenville High, the quarterback. He was solidly built and had a spit curl falling down over his forehead. He wore form-fitting tights, and in the Olympics, 
all anyone could talk about was Jesse Owens, a Cleveland native who was believed to be the fastest man alive, like he had superpowers. There's a synthesis here, a translucent glimpse into the creative minds of Jerry and Joe. They were being inundated with information about people with physical abilities far beyond the norm at a time the world was in desperate need of a figure of hope, a figure that began to emerge from a symphony of fiction they had both consumed. With Darkoff, please has connection with Purple Death, investigating last part. Who wins they decided their superpowered antagonist worked better as a protagonist. His origin was the stuff of science fiction. Born on a planet called Krypton that was about to end and sent off to Earth to be raised by mortals. A skin-tight costume broadcast his otherworldliness. A small curl hung over his forehead. He had speed and incredible powers. It was an homage to the strongmen of the era, who were famous for feats of strength. Joe Schuster was trying to come up with costumes, and he used to have these county fairs all over the country, and he used to have these strongmen that would come to town, you know, these guys with the um, handlebar mustaches, and they would bend steel in their bare hands and, and break chains, and they'd, they'd wear these costumes that would be, they'd be like tights, with swim trunks over the tights, and a cape. Joe would go to these county fairs where they have these strongmen and he would take his art pad and he would illustrate or he would draw these strongmen. He would get ideas because Superman ended up with kind of this costume with people joking. He's wearing his underpants on the outside. But really that is what the strongmen used to have. They have these tights and they'd have these boots and they'd have the swim trunks over that. And that's what he decided to go with. The S on his chest stood for Superman. It also could have stood for Siegel and Schuster. It was a few years. When they were in 11th grade is when they came up with the Superman idea. It wasn't 100% like it is today. Superman, the original one, didn't even have a costume originally. And uh, they drew one that was a publisher actually interested because all the other publishers they were communicating with wouldn't publish anything they came up with because they were high school kids, you know. And there was a, a publisher who was publishing a, a comic called Detective Dan, which was really like the first real comic book, because all the other comics were really comic strips in newspapers you know, that were syndicated. There were no comic books originally. So they saw this and they thought, this would be really cool. This is what they would like to do. So they contacted that publisher and he said he was interested. But then the company went out of business a few weeks later and they were so frustrated. The cover they put for Superman, which basically he was just bare chested. Joe Schuster was so upset that he destroyed everything, except Jerry Siegel managed to save the cover of that. Jerry imagined Superman could be the next comic strip hit. It was clear that Superman was a visual character, one whose physical abilities needed to be seen, not just described. But the New York comic strip publishers Jerry queried were indifferent at best. Superman was strange, a weird amalgam of sci-fi and the kind of street-level justice dished out by Dick Tracy. Superman was virtually invulnerable, but seemed content to punch the lights out of common thieves. Thieves who might rob innocent shopkeepers. Jerry eventually tried his luck with National Allied Publications, which had already published a few of Jerry and Joe's stories. And just to be clear, that publisher, later known as DC Comics, went through several names and was involved in acquisitions early on. We'll spare you the confusion and just refer to them as DC. 
The company was gearing up to begin printing a new anthology comic book title, Action Comics, short and to the point to grab a young reader's attention. They took a look at Jerry and Joe's submission and believed Superman would be a good fit. No one, of course, could predict what Superman would bring, that he would be the beginning of the superhero age. And then they kept working on it, and they sent it to other publishers, and they came up with the Superman costume and so forth, and many other aspects of it, including that he was not from Earth. Originally, he was from Earth, and how he came to Krypton, and had a different gravity, and that would allow him to be able to leap tall buildings with a single bound and so forth, because they wanted to make sure they could justify how he could do all these things and lift heavy objects because the weight on Earth was different, although he couldn't fly in the beginning. But they kept getting rejections. They graduated high school in 1934, and they still worked at it, and they kept trying and trying and trying, and they, they never gave up. And finally, in 1938, a publisher finally agreed to publish it, and that publisher later became known as DC Comics. Harry Donenfeld, who headed up DC, offered the two young men the opportunity to write and illustrate their first Superman story. Jerry and Joe, who had been trying to break into the business of telling stories for years, eagerly accepted. And so, in April of 1938, the cover of Action Comics No. 1 depicted the debut of Superman and the birth of the American comic book superhero. A single copy would come to be worth millions of dollars. Back then, it was 10 cents. But that big break came with a catch. They said, hey, we're going to publish it. And not only that, we're going to give you a 10-year contract, guaranteed money, guaranteed salary to write and illustrate Superman. Well, this was a, their dream come true. So they were excited to agree to that. DC, and I'll call it DC so, so we know for the audience, they said, but we agreed to sign you this 10-year contract we must own the rights, not you. And they wanted to make sure that Superman got published, so they agreed to that. And they got a very small compensation for the rights. Harry Donenfeld paid Jerry and Joe $130. And in return, Jerry and Joe gave Harry everything. Superman. To have and hold forever, the contract said. Forever. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was booted. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. 
After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. even measure the success of a genre that didn't yet exist. When action number one hit newsstands, there was no such thing as a superhero. Sure, the Phantom had worn tights in comic strips and Doc Savage had unbreakable skin, but Superman was something else, and readers knew it. DC printed 200,000 copies of action number one and watched as it sold out. Who knows why kids like anything? But that cover of Superman hefting a car over his head while people run away from him was galvanizing. No one had seen anything like it. It stood out. One, because it was colorful. Two, because of what it had on the cover. I mean, people knew what comics were. Well, they didn't know what comics books were, you know, they had started to show up. Um, They knew what what comic strips were, so they recognized, you know, that's what this was. But you have this strange picture of this guy in this suit, and the suit was like nothing else before. And he's lifting this car and kind of smashing it, and it's a brand new car. That's Brad Rica. Brad wrote the definitive dual biography of Jerry and Joe. It's called Superboys, and it was published in 2013. So, you know, I teach, once in a while I teach a class in comics, and we always analyze this cover, you know, what is it about this cover that got kids to buy it? Because that's the oldest anecdote in Superman lore is that, you know, kids bought this thing, and that's why comics and Superman took off. And you look at that cover, and he doesn't even look like a hero, and he looks like the villain, because there's somebody's brand new car, and he's destroying it. And who has a brand new car in the Depression? (laughs) Nobody. But somebody in class, and I try to remember who said it, so I feel bad about it, but I'll always acknowledge that somebody said it and it wasn't me. They said, no, that's not why kids bought this book. And if you look at the picture of the cover of Action Comics 1, if you you kind of picture it in your head, there's Superman lifting the car, and there's this guy on the bottom left who's with his both his hands, he kind of looks like the scream, and both his hands on his face, and he's running kind of out of the cover with a scream on his mouth. And somebody said, that's why kids bought it. And the rest of the class was like, why? What are you talking about? They bought it because of Superman, because he's super cool. No matter the reason, Action Comics was a hit. Superman became a regular feature, eclipsing any other character within its pages. In 1939, he got his own title. And he had come from all places, Cleveland, where Brad was from. When I got older and I realized, well, they did come from Cleveland and they did create Superman here. The question that kept nagging at me was, well, how'd they do it? 
Because to me, that's like the Superman, the first superhero, really the first superhero. It's the Philosopher's Stone, right? You know, how did they figure out to put all these different things together and have this magic to create somebody who wears his, his underwear on the outside? And that we all still love, you know, almost 80 years later. So to me, then it became more of a kind of a detective story that I really wanted to know how they did it. It was Brad who debunked one of the great Superman creation myths, that Jerry's father had been shot during that clothing store robbery. What I found is that, in fact, he did obviously die that night, but what happened is he had a heart attack, because he was in his clothing store, and, and some men came in, and they were going to steal a suit, and he went to stop them, and he dropped over of heart failure. And it's hard to say whether he was scared or he just, you know, didn't know what to do. Or he overexerted himself, but that's how he died. And then a year later, like almost to the day, is when Jerry comes up with the idea for Superman. And I started to see, once you kind of see that, all the early comics, there's all these panels where criminals drop dead of a heart attack. When they see Superman, and Superman goes, well, they're weak and... What else could I do? And it's also Clark Kent, who in one hand is this really meek, mild-mannered American journalist who faints when there's action nearby, turns into Superman. And this made me think, this is why Jerry was so invested in it, because he put the tragedy of his father's death into this character who is not the victim of crime, but fights crime as this immortal superhero forever in the comics and beyond. And it made me see Superman as not just this, at least their version, not just this commercial thing, colorful thing to sell to kids who would go nuts, but really this, for lack of a better word, but maybe it is the word, is a work of art. And his mythology only grew. A new radio show followed, which introduced Jimmy Olsen as well as Kryptonite, which weakened Superman. A series of theatrical cartoons by animation legend Max Fleischer were produced and were so exquisite that they don't have equals to this day. Superman toys began filling up shelves, model kits and statues and decoder rings. Kids were crazy for him and the other heroes that followed. Batman, Captain America, Wonder Woman. A dam had burst and out came heroes with grandiose origin stories and spandex uniforms but none were as visible or as powerful as what Jerry and Joe had dreamt up. For a few years, the two got steady work from DC Comics. So much work that the two hired artists to help fulfill the need for Superman stories. Superman even got the syndicated newspaper comic strip deal Jerry longed for. But when they'd asked for more fair compensation, DC editors would remind them that Superman belonged to DC. And if they were sore about it, well, DC could find someone else to write and draw him. That scared the two. Superman was theirs, if not legally, then creatively and emotionally. So they kept working, watching as DC counted their money. In 1940 alone, subsidiary company Superman Inc made $1.5 million. Jerry and Joe didn't. In my opinion, they knew what they were doing. That it wasn't just buying another comics feature. And part of this is that Harry Donenfeld had just lost out on a contract on The Lone Ranger. And The Lone Ranger was hugely popular. 
everyone was jealous of the Lone Ranger because it all came out of one person that every time, you know, you would license the Lone Ranger, but you would hear it on the radio, you'd watch the serials, you'd read the pulps and the whatever, you had to pay this guy. Just like Disney with Mickey Mouse. And I think Donenfeld really liked that because when he finally lost his contract, he was printing Lone Ranger magazines. I think he kind of was looking for a character that he could do that with. And again, that's just a theory of my part. But also I think the fact that once they got Superman, almost immediately they're turning him into what we today would call a transmedia empire. They're working on the radio show is what transforms the audience for that. And then that just explodes. But I think so. The other side of it, like you said, they work on Superman for 10 years. They make a lot of money and they ask for raises. They beg for raises. They get raises. It's a long and tumultuous relationship, but they're very well paid. You know, they move to new houses and they're kind of what I call Cleveland famous around town and even bigger than that, too. And then Jerry went off to war. Joe couldn't serve because of his poor eyesight, and Superman couldn't either. With his powers, it would be easy to imagine him pummeling the Axis, but that would minimize the sacrifices being made by real heroes. So when Clark Kent tries to enlist, he fails an eye exam. His x-ray vision means he accidentally reads the eye chart in the next room. While stationed in Hawaii, Jerry contributed to Stars and Stripes, a periodical distributed to soldiers. His writing experience largely kept him out of action, though he was away from his own family. He had married a woman named Joanne, whom Joe had used as the physical model for Lois Lane. The war was being unkind to Superman in another kind of way. Thanks to paper shortages, paper drives were common, with households donating their newspapers, magazines, and comics so they could be pulped for the war effort. There's no telling how many thousands or even millions of comics were destroyed this way. For good cause, obviously, but turned into confetti nonetheless, and contributing to a scarcity of these comics that are so valued today. The war ended one conflict, but when Jerry returned home, he was still fighting another, the one with DC. He and Joe felt they'd been strung along, placated with work and good salaries while DC had profited handsomely from Superman. They sued the company for $5 million, based in part on the introduction of Superboy, a juvenile version of the character the two had created and DC had published without obtaining the copyright to the character. The two ultimately settled for $100,000, sensing DC had the resources for a long legal fight. As a result, Jerry and Joe were persona non grata at DC, and that infuriated both men, but Jerry especially. And he tended to act on his emotions, which led to another story Brad was able to debunk. 
And there were other stories, too. There was one that took me forever to track down that he put on a Superman cape and was going to jump off a building in Midtown because he was so upset with the way he'd been treated. And I found out that that story was wrong, even though, you know, there are tons of comics professionals to this day who will swear to its accuracy. Well, that was Jerry Siegel. It wasn't. It was some other guy just doing it for some completely other reason. So there's a lot of stories like that. And as his wife once called into D.C. and said, we're out of money. We have a, a daughter, a young daughter. Please give him some work. And there's just there's a lot of that. I think you said that's kind of extra legal, but kind of going on in the relationship between him and D.C. And then things got very personal. When D.C. sold the television rights to Superman in 1950, Jerry and Joe felt slighted. Now the character, in their view, their character, was being beamed into millions of households and conquering another new medium, and they didn't get a penny for it. Having spent the settlement money, Jerry retaliated in whatever way he could. He wrote a letter to the FBI admonishing the agency to investigate D.C., alleging their employees had criminal and communist pasts. When the Superman show made it to air, Jerry proclaimed he was going on a hunger strike to protest what he said was unfair treatment by the company. And they began sending him a little bit of money, if only to avoid the negative publicity. But hadn't Jerry and Joe sold their rights free and clear and of their own volition? They did. But in their eyes, what was legal and what was ethical were worlds apart. Without income from DC, both men were struggling, Joe more so. His eyesight, which had long been an issue for him, kept getting worse. At one point, he took on work as an artist for the underground adult illustration scene. These were drawings of a lurid nature that appealed to fetish enthusiasts, with men and women bound up and whipped. In Joe's drawings of these scenarios, the men looked very much like Clark Kent, and the women looked remarkably like Lois Lane. It was as though Joe was driven to depict them as being victimized, perhaps in the way he felt they were being tormented by DC, the way he and Jerry were being mistreated. Joe, of course, left the drawings unsigned, and they weren't identified as his until decades later. In the late 1950s, Jerry went back to DC as a writer, invited into the fold by new editors to resume being a co-author of Superman's adventures. He set about writing the best stories he could, but the arrangement didn't last long, and by the 1960s, Jerry was once more at odds with the company. He pursued another lawsuit to try and reclaim Superman's copyright, though the odds weren't good. He and Joe had relinquished the rights not once, but twice. A court sided with DC. If the relationship was fractured, it suffered permanent injury when DC entered into an agreement for a major motion picture to be made about the character. Warner Brothers would release Superman the Movie, starring Christopher Reeve as the Man of Steel. In 1975, Jerry wrote an open letter in which he literally cursed the production. So irate was he at the idea of DC profiting from the character while he and Joe struggled to make ends meet. 
He hoped, he wrote, that the movie, quote, super bombs. Yeah, and it was that movie because there's stories of he passed once on uh, New York Street, and this is years before he passed his wife and him passed George Reeves, and he said Jerry froze, and he like just couldn't handle it. And Joe would stand outside. There was like the Superman musical on Broadway, and he you know would see the famous people coming in. He just froze. He just couldn't deal with it. But then it was that movie because they announced in the magazines there's going to be this big Superman movie, but it was Brando was going to be in it, and he was going to be paid this obscene amount of money to be Jor El, and that's what put Jerry over the edge. Marlon Brando was to play Superman's father, Jor El. With Brando being the most respected living actor at the time, he was paid handsomely for relatively little work. Almost $4 million, a number that grew when he received part of the box office gross. More than Jerry and Joe could ever dream of seeing from having created Superman. Money that went to an actor who seemed slightly disinterested in the role and suggested to director Richard Donner he could play the character as a suitcase or a bagel. He'd just do the voice. The publicity was not perhaps what DC and Warner wanted, so they agreed, finally, that Jerry and Joe were due at least modest compensation beyond their initial $130 payment and work-for-hire fees. After three decades of fighting, DC began paying them each an annual pension of $30,000 with health care. Of course, that's something. That's good. But it still didn't seem just. They created one of the most indelible characters in modern culture. But there was another concession, one that was probably as important to Jerry and Joe. From that point on, whenever Superman appeared in print or on screen, a credit would appear, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was booted. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School... I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They 
prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you walk around Cleveland today, you'll see pages from Action Comics number one. Priceless pages stuck on an outdoor fence. And in a testament to the respect due Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, no one tries to pry them off or deface them. The pages are oversized and facsimiles, not the real thing. But they're there in tribute to what these two Clevelanders, really just two teenage boys, contributed to the world. An idealized version of a hero, beyond the pettiness of human behavior. Strong enough to defend the weak. For Jerry and Joe, defending them and honoring their memory meant creating the Siegel and Schuster Society, a nonprofit devoted to keeping their roles as pioneers alive in the eyes of the public. Here's Gary Kaplan. In 2007, uh, journalists for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, his name is Mike Sanjacomo, wrote a story, it was a full page uh, story, asking why doesn't the city of Cleveland celebrate that Superman was created in Cleveland? This sort of brought a lot of attention. And so a group of people got together, some businessmen, some college professors, and they formed the Siegel and Schuster Society in 2007. My uncle was on the board at that time, I was not. And in 2009, two years later, they renovated the home of Jerry Siegel, which was in pretty poor shape. He had a typewriter in his attic bedroom where he uh, wrote uh, so many of the stories. And so they wanted to preserve the home. And uh, with the help of author Brad Meltzer, money was raised online and they raised over $100,000. They put $100,000 in renovations in the home. And they had a ribbon cutting ceremony in 2009. It was a wonderful event. In addition to that, Joe Schuster, who illustrated it, his home was nine blocks away and the home had already been torn down years ago. So there was a new home put there, but they put up a commemorative fence with the panels from Action Comics number one going all the way around the fence, which is really, really cool. And so people drive by and they can see all these panels of the comic from Action Comics number one. And then in 2012, the Siegel and Schuster Society worked with Cleveland Hopkins Airport to put in a permanent Superman exhibit, which contains a statue of Superman along with a sign that says, Welcome to Cleveland where the legend began. And everyone can see that as they go to the baggage department at Cleveland Hopkins Airport. Also our society in 2013, we work with the state of Ohio, uh, the legislature. We put together a license plate with the Superman uh, S insignia, the logo, with the words Truth, Justice, and American Way. So anybody in Ohio can get one of those license plates. And there's, I believe, over 100,000 Ohioans have that license plate, including myself. So those are some of the things that we have done. And we're working on some other things right now too. In a way, Jerry's home became a kind of shrine, a place of cultural birth. It's also occupied by a couple, the Greys, who warmly welcome people making a pilgrimage to pay their respects to Superman's co-creator. It's the best looking house on the block. You know you're in the right place because there is a big S on the wooden fence out front. For years, some collectors arrived wondering if the rumors about Jerry leaving stacks of action number ones in the attic were true. After all, no one knew they'd become cultural artifacts, prized like Maltese falcons. 
Well, where newsstands were, typically they would have some comic books. It could be a pharmacy, but it could be lots of places, really. It was 10 cents to buy a Superman comic. And who knew years later it would be worth so valuable because what happened, people would buy it and then the next one would come out. So they would throw out the old one. They wouldn't save it. No one envisioned that it would have some value to it. Author Brad Meltzer traveled to the family home once, along with a journalist, and the current owners told him no one had been in the attic in decades. He was seized by the possibilities. Could there really be a small pile of million-dollar comics just sitting in this attic? So he asked to go up, but there wasn't any easy access to it. They promised they'd have their son take a look. The Greys later phoned the reporter to state that they had gone up and no there was no hidden treasure. Well, I suppose they'd say that regardless, wouldn't they? Well, I can guarantee you there are no Superman action comic number ones in the house that the Greys occupy right now in Cleveland. That I can tell you, there's none in there. Jerry himself saved many copies of Action Comics number one, and he had dozens of them. And his daughter told me that what happened was, well, him and Joe both were financially devastated by losing their jobs. And for years, they did several things. Joe worked for the post office, and it was, difficult for them. So they ended up selling some of these action comic number ones for money. So they get $100 maybe for one, which was, that's a pretty good return on a 10 cent investment, you know? And then later in the May, maybe they got a few hundred dollars, you know, and eventually they didn't have any left. Now, I'm sure they never envisioned it would be worth over a million dollars. The same comic coveted by collectors and thieves who spend or steal millions once sold off for a few hundred dollars because Jerry Siegel needed the money. It's a cutthroat media world out there with massive entities jockeying for consumer dollars and comic book properties treated like roadmaps to fortunes. Lost among all of that maneuvering are the people responsible for creating these characters. The Siegel family waged a legal battle for years against Warner, arguing the estate was entitled to compensation and partial ownership for the cultural pillar Superman had become. That fight seemingly ended in 2013 with a court ruling that concluded years of legal entanglement. Warner Brothers would keep Superman. The Siegel estate would get a settlement. So did DC steal Superman? No, of course not. A deal was made. But what precedent did Jerry and Joe have? Who could have anticipated what Superman would become? The promise of making a living as creators was intoxicating. What reason would either of them have to ever lay down at night and imagine a world where Superman was earning millions in toys and movies and comics, while Joe would later be so downtrodden he was awakened by a cop on a park bench and taken for a warm meal? Superman seemed to enrich everyone around him except the two men who brought him to life. Not theft, but something was taken. Today, living comic writers and artists often see their work co-opted for movies or streaming shows, but checks rarely make their way to their mailboxes. Sometimes you can create something so big and immersive that you can't get out from its shadow. Gary wants Jerry and Joe to avoid that fate. Joe died in 1922, Jerry in 1992. 
The society raises money and promotes events to make sure their memory remains a constant. That every time Superman bursts through a wall, that fans will remember the S can stand for Siegel and Schuster. And you know, Jerry's father died during a botched robbery. And I think he thought of his father a lot. And he wanted to create somebody, have somebody who would defend the defenseless. And he thought of his father, I'm sure. And he made him bulletproof too, for I think for that reason. What Siegel and Schuster left behind is much more than a comic book. There is so much history within the pages of Action Comics number one. Superficially, it's an object and one to be coveted among the millionaire collectors of the world. But look past the panels and you'll see a story about a grieving son who coped with the loss of his father by giving the world what everyone needs, a hero. What you're buying isn't scarcity, but a representation of hope. Well, I can't put a price on it. I think the market decides the price, like anything. But even if it was only worth a dollar, I would want it, <laughs> you know, because it's historical. And uh, it means a lot to my family. And it started the entire superhero genre, this one comic. It all started with that. And now we have all these superheroes everywhere. And they're more popular than ever. And Jerry and Joe made it happen. And uh, I'm very proud of them. The value of the world is, I would say, is, is huge. I mean, he's known all over the world. You could go to visit cities in Tokyo and Paris and so forth, and you see people walking out around with t-shirts with a Superman S shield on it all over the world. Even in Ukraine, they were showing people defending Ukraine and some were wearing Superman t-shirts because they felt like Superman for that moment, trying to defend the defenseless, just like Jerry wanted Superman to defend the defenseless. So the significance is tremendous. Here's Brad Rika. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot and other people too. It's it's a really strange, almost unique kind of American artifact, Action One, because it's like this almost holy relic because it's worth so much money. But it's also this holy relic because of what's in it, because it's the first appearance of Superman. I mean, that's why it's in the Smithsonian, not because... It's worth millions of dollars. You know, everyone who's ever seen an Action Comics one, you have this moment where it's like, this is it. And then people that have actually touched one or held one, it's the same thing. I'm like, well, wait, this is just a comic, just paper and staples, but it's something more, too. It's so strange to think of a thief stealing of all things Action One, right? Because it's the... It's the superhero, it's the fight against crime, and someone's trying to take that away. The thing with Action One, it has no physical value, right? But it's kind of all that symbolic value. I mean, it's valuable because it's rare, certainly, but there's a lot of things that are rare that aren't worth millions of dollars. I mean, it's just Superman. It's the first superhero and you know i think it gets more valuable with time because we start to realize how more important that is to our history than maybe we first thought was that on the mind of the thief who took it from nicholas cage that they were really sealing someone's idealized version of superman that they were robbing him of the innocence that the character was supposed to be projecting the thing about Superman, too, is it's so, it's it's Superman. It's the good guy, you know? I mean, what do you do if you steal it and you're just, like, looking at it every night and Superman's right on the cover 
just saying, you know, why aren't you Stanley? That's the wrong thing to do. You can't like Superman and steal Action 1. No, you probably can't. That would probably be the first thing you'd want to ask anyone who surfaced with the comic. Why? Why do it? But after 11 years, it didn't seem like that day was ever going to come. That Superman would be forever defeated by the Cage party robber. But then, one day, Cage's comic book dealer, Stephen Fischler, got a call and an invitation to meet the two most bizarre characters of this entire story. The individual who walked in behind me holding the manila folder is now sitting in this office, and the manila folder is now open, and there's the book on like a little acrylic pedestal. And we sit down. Yeah, that's a, an original action one. That's next time on Stealing Superman. Stealing Superman is written by Jake Rawson. Sound design and score by Jonathan Washington. Additional production support by Josh Fisher. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Mixing and mastering by Bahid Frazier. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson and Austin Thompson, with production support from Lulu Phillip. Additional voices by Ruthie Stevens and Zarin Burnett. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our executive producer is Jason English. And I'm your host, Dana Schwartz. If you're enjoying this show, check out Haleywood and Noble Blood, and give us a nice review. We'll see you next week. Stealing Superman is a production of iHeartRadio. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. He was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.